If you have your Bible, we will be in First John this morning. We are continuing our series. Uh, that song, Restless, we sing that pretty often. It's, uh, or, or actually, there's two songs that use these lines from the opening. It's the first section of Augustine's Confessions, which is just, if I had to pick like three books, like the Bible, maybe Pilgrim's Progress, and Augustine's Confessions, like just like, for like changing the world kind of thing. Uh, he says this line, he's reflecting on his coming to faith, and he, he, that's his line, uh, I'm restless till I find rest in you, reflecting on scripture speaking to the fact that uh, there's this peace and stillness and security with God, and I think that it's true, right? Like I, I recognize that in my life, right, the restlessness in my heart, um, this week I was uh, deeply upset by uh, social media. I was, I was on uh, Instagram for a second, and uh, it, it it upset me because um, how did it know that I wanted that sweatshirt? Right? Like I like I didn't know that I wanted that shirt. Like I did. It, it checked all the bars for me. Unnecessarily expensive for what it is. Yeah, for sure. That's what it was. Uh, an obscure reference to a musical thing that only like nine people get. Yeah. How did, uh, yeah. Like, how did it know? Like, it seems to know me so well. Uh, and, and it's exploiting this thing where we're restless, right? Social media does that, right? Actually, just the, the world these days. I grew up in what um, felt, regardless of what it was, it felt like when I was growing up very Mayberry. Or the part of Stranger Things where kids are riding bikes, you know, without the scary monsters. But the walkie-talkies and the bikes, right? Like that was, it felt very safe to me. Um, although there probably were monsters, right? And so it, it felt this secure. So I, this world now, just, I, I, it felt so stable, right? And so you grow up and you think it's just going to get more and more stable. But it feels like it becomes more and more destabilizing. And one of the things that destabilizes, one of the things that shakes is... That constant restlessness, that constant looking for the thing that's just out of grasp. I don't know if you've noticed, but that kind of marks our age, right? Uh, a long for trans- something right outside, right outside of us. Um, we live in an age when a bunch of people are increasingly checking not religious, uh, have no uh, faith, but yet also increasingly looking for something. <laughs> I'm like, oh, look, like, what if we put these two things together? Um, you're looking for something, and here's the thing. So uh, that restlessness and, and, and this, this increasingly live in a world where we're lied to, right? It doesn't feel safe anymore because we're constantly lied to. Uh, so much of the world now, I've started reading a bunch of articles about, uh, uh, in the past couple few years about uh, AI, right? Artificial intelligence. Like, it's going to take all of our jobs and think for us and all this stuff, right? It's terrifying, supposedly. But until Siri can set a timer, I'm not really that worried about it. Uh, but AI is increasingly used to know us. It, it knows us. Uh, the way that they knew that I wanted that sweatshirt before I even knew that I wanted that sweatshirt was because of the algorithm. <laughs> the algorithm. They, they looked and went, Chris likes these things. He's going here. He's on all these places. And it, 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 it gathered so much information that it was like, you know what he would like? This sweatshirt. And they were right before I even knew it. It feels creepy sometimes, right? The, the, the depth that sometimes it feels like this artificial intelligence is looking into our soul to make us do things, trick us into buying things. Because that's the thing. On the other side of that program, that artificial intelligence, the, the thing on the other side of it is something that's flattering us, right? You deserve this. Also trying to terrify us, right, of the, that thing over there. But not anything that cares for you or about the truth at all. 
right? The thing that's trying to trick me and confuse me, the thing that I give a bunch of my attention to, it cares nothing at all about the truth or me. It only wants what I have, either my vote or my money or my time. They're programmed to make me continually want to scroll. Like, yes, I do want to see this guy talk for 20 minutes about a Prince Solo, right? Like, how did I know I wanted to do that? But I do. It's just whatever it can do to keep me on that page, it's figured out. And so that, I think that, that this makes us feel like, what's true? Who can I trust? What can I trust? Where is reality? And so John's writing to some people who are dealing with some of those same questions. And not so much about AI, but about what's true and who's telling the truth and what can I believe, what can I rely on, what is this place that I can live out of? So he writes this letter, 1 John, what we call 1 John, to these people that he loves. He clearly cares for these people deeply. And and he says some really amazing things, uh, really valuable things. As a matter of fact, uh, on the part that we were looking at just last week, um, he, he kind of wrapped up this way. He, he's telling them, he's just really black and white sometimes, John. He's telling them that there's really only two family resemblances. There, there's going to be two families of origin. He says that there's the family of God and what an amazing thing that we can be a part of the family of God. He's just overwhelmed by the beauty of that, right? The beginning of chapter three. He just, just how, what kind of foreign otherworldly love is it that God would somehow make us children, sons and daughters? And then he says, there's also uh, the sons and daughters of the devil. Those are your two choices, which feels extreme to me. But in John's thinking, there's those who are for God and those who are about his kingdom coming and then those who will reject the kingdom that's coming. And that's, that's it. And so he says this at the end of, of the, the last, where we, start, where we started last week. This is verse 10 of chapter three. He says, by this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. He's gonna tell us how we can tell. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. He says that the way that we can tell who is the, not of, who's the family of God is they do righteous, and the ones that are not are not, so not uh, are of the devil. And so Paul's writing to these people who are dealing with friends have left the church. And they are saying things like, I'm, you know, I'm making this up, right? Like I'm using my sanctified imagination. Uh, saying things like, yeah, 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 we used to believe like you guys believe, right? But now we've kind of advanced. We've found this new thing, right? Yeah, 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 we were where you were once and one day you could be like us, right? And so they're, they're splitting this and confusing people and people are wondering who they can trust. And what they're telling these people is they, they've separated the body and the soul. And they've said, hey, Jesus, Jesus couldn't have had a real body, because body is bad, the flesh is bad, the world is bad, material world is bad, and the spirit is good. So Jesus couldn't have had a real body. And John, that's why John opens his letters like, dude, I, I heard him with my ears, I saw him with my eyes, I laid my head on his chest. Like I've hugged this guy. He had a body. And then they've con- extrapolated that to the next step and said, hey, not only that, not only have we, since the body is bad and, and the, the spirit is good, it doesn't really matter what I do with my body. I can do whatever I want with my body. And it won't matter because it's flesh, it's bad, it's, it's going to pass away. But my spirit, it's still, uh, it can still be good. And it, it's part, it, I'm a child of God because my spirit is good no matter what I do with my body. So John is addressing this and he says to them, well, that doesn't make any sense at all. 
They're not separated. Who you are, you, you live out of that place. You, you live out of there. You can't separate these things. You can't take away what you do, separate what you do from who you are on the inside. You're one. You're beautiful. And this is great news because it means God's not just coming back to redeem my spirit because I do not want to live on a cloud and play a harp in a spirit form. I want a body. I want my elbow to not hurt when I drink coffee. I want the new all of it, right? Like I want, I want to get out of bed in the morning and not have to stretch, Right? I, I, just, I want the new things promised, right? And it's good that he's re- going to redeem all of these things. So John is just, just saying, this, is, this doesn't make any sense. How can you separate these things? You can't do that. What you do and, and who you are on the inside, they're not separable. They're not something that you can separate. And they're saying, yeah, yeah, we used to be like you. And John says, I don't think you understand the radical nature of what's happened. John says, listen, we've gone from dark to light. There's no more judgment for you anymore. He says, you've gone from death to life. What's happened to you is so crazy radical that Jesus once described it to a guy as being born completely again. Like That's how radical what's happened in your life is. And you think that that's not going to affect you? Uh, if you've ever had a, uh, a child, a baby, or been around a baby, or have had a baby, I don't, when people are having babies, like, they'll come to me and we'll talk about it. You know, like, usually it's like, I'm scared about, I'm going to be a terrible father or whatever. I don't even really talk to people about it, right? I don't have advice uh, um, for people that that, that happens to because uh, how do you explain that the entire universe tilts off its axis slightly? Like, you can't explain that. Like, it's like, everything's different, right? You go from... My dad said it this way once, and I'm sure he got, I don't know where he got it from, but my dad would say this. He says, having a child is great as long as you don't mind your heart walking around outside your body. Like, how do you explain that to someone, right? It's just, it's just when something enters, or, or maybe you just fall, fall into a relationship that just, like, you love this person, this person is so good to you and so kind, and, and you enter this relationship, imagine suggesting that this kind of love enters your life and it doesn't change how you act. It doesn't make any sense. It changes things. Relationships change. So how could the very God who was there in the beginning enter your life and not make a difference? That's crazy. And so that's where we are. That's what he's talking about. He's not saying digging up every little thing every time uh, you have a bad thought going, that means you're a child of the devil. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it's going to make a difference in your life and take sin seriously. And then he says this. This is verses uh, 11. Let's read through 18 and see what happens. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we've passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know and no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he's laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's, uh, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how could God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love in word or talk. Not, not in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. John says this, he says, this is going to make a difference in your life. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning. 
these people have come around with this new message, right? This new talk. Hey, you don't really need to worry about what you do. You can go to the parties that we go to. You can do all the things that we do with your body because it doesn't matter. If this is a new thing, we kind of like, you're on like level, you're like a freshman level. This is like the graduate level. And if you guys get here, you can see that what we're doing is fine and we're still children of God. This new message has come along and John says, what do, you, what do you need a new message for? The old message is just fine. The old message was good. The old message was true. Remember what attracted you to Jesus in the first place? Do you remember why you began to follow Jesus? Because you encountered a love like you had never encountered before. You encountered a love of a God that has pursued you and that made you live this way. Why would you veer from that? Why would you veer into a thing that makes you not love that way? Or where people aren't being loving that way? Why would you do that? Let me tell you the thing that you knew from the beginning. That you're supposed to love one another because you've encountered this unbelievable love. You don't need a new thing. You need that thing. So it just reminds me the old thing. I also think John's doing a thing that John likes to do. I love it so much. Where he means both things. You'll be studying something that, and, and that John has said. And you're like, oh, does he mean this or does he mean this? And a lot of times I think the answer is, he means both those things. Also, he's using a phrase in the beginning that people would have recognized referencing all the way back to the beginning of Genesis, right? Not only did you hear from us at the beginning that you should love one another because God is love, but you heard from the message all the way back in the very beginning that God himself is love. Always has been. The Christians believe this amazing thing. I love it so much. Uh, it, uh, it's this Trinity. We believe there's one God, but in Trinity, in three, there's one God in three persons, and, and it doesn't make sense. The math doesn't work. And it's this great mystery. I'm, I had a sermon series that I'm working on for like two years on the Trinity uh, that I'll probably never, I'll never be smart enough to do. I'll never get there, right? I really want to. But it's this amazing, beautiful mystery that should be explored. And that at the very beginning, God, this one God, is somehow, somehow three co-equal persons in this one God, and at the very heart of the universe, before up, down, left, right, minutes and seconds were a thing, before creation itself was, God existed and he was love, because he's in three, in this perfect loving relationship, deeply satisfied, deeply happy, deeply fulfilled, because of this loving relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit. And out of this love, creation spills. Right? God creates. Not only did you hear from us at the beginning that God is love, that that you're supposed to love one another, but from the very beginning of time, this is who God has always been. It is his character. It is his nature. It's how he acts. That is foundational. That is foundational. God is love. As a matter of fact, I would argue, and I think I could do it pretty successfully, that's kind of the starting place for the Christian faith. John says God is love. This is the place that we start, the very character and nature of God. And so therefore how he acts and what he does, we assume he is love because he said that he is love. And then what happens, we now interpret in light of the fact that God is love. That's his nature. It's what he is like. Do not forget that. There are some, we're not facing the same argument that they're facing, but there are modern heresies. There are things that people believe that we ought not to believe. But, but I also think that there's times in our life where we encounter, you know, hopefully there's a time in your life that you fell in love with Jesus, that you're just overwhelmed and you're like, yeah, I'm going to give my life to Christ. I, I, this is it. This is what I've been looking for. I've been restless until this moment, and this is the thing that I'm going to stand on. And then life goes on, right? Like, like it happens and you begin to grow in Christ and you begin to 
mature and, and things happen in your life and in the world and, and sometimes those things all of a sudden become distractions. And, and, and then sometimes even worse, like tragedy happens. And sometimes something, you know, even sometimes inside the church, there are deep wounds and hurts. Sometimes relationships injure you and, and break. And sometimes community disappoints you. And you're hurt and you're wounded by these things. And I've seen so many people, I've known ministers who've given their life, had, had preaching and teaching and pouring out into people and then something happened, they were wounded, they did something and they weren't loved well or, or just were not loved well and were no longer, no longer in ministry and they slowly, I watched several of them slowly step away from the church altogether because of the deep hurts that they had encountered. I tell people who uh, come to church, I'm like, uh, I assume that you, like, people talk about how the, church, the hurts that they have and that they've experienced in church uh, and I'm, I'm sympathetic because yeah, like, welcome to the club, right? Like, yeah, it was full of people who just not, don't act right, right? Like, just, who else would be there, right? It's just full of people who don't act right. And of course you're going to be hurt, and of course you're going to be wounded. And some of those r- r- wounds run very, very deep. And to you, if that's happened to you, if the disappointments of life, the tragedy of life, or, or, or the circumstances of, of church have wounded you, let me say this to you. I want you to remember why you started in the first place. It's the foundation of this Christ that we've, we found, this, this love that we experienced. And, and here's the deal. If I disappoint you, or when I disappoint you, that has nothing to do with Jesus. If I fail you, if I stumble and fall, and I'm doing everything I can not to, and I need you guys to help, right? But if I stumble and fall, I need you to know that has nothing to do with how much Jesus loves you. The foundational thing. We, sometimes we get to a place where we, we end up elevating maybe community or we elevate this thing or this person above Christ. And when that thing fails us, we think Jesus has, he hasn't, and he will not. Do not forget your first love. Do not fall for the new thing that's happened and forget the old thing that was from the beginning that God is love. I know that there are things that happen that hurt. I know there are things that wound. Do not forget that at the center of the universe, the core of the universe is not some vast emptiness, but a being who is in himself love that spills out. Yes, there's hurt and brokenness in the world, but he is love and he will fix these things. One day, all of the sad un- things that have happened, all the terrible things will come un- become untrue. Or we will look back at our lives and the moments of deepest hurt and the deepest disappointment will somehow become the, the greatest moments of our life because God was using them to prepare us for a weight of eternal glory that we cannot even dream of. Because he loves us. Even if I disappoint you, when I disappoint you, even if I fail, it has nothing to do with Jesus. He loves you. Do not ever forget that. That is the thing. Do not lose track of that. Always return to that reality. So he says this. Don't think about a new thing. Remember the old thing. This love that you encountered that changes you. And then he does this uh, bizarre thing. He says, so like, you need to love one another. And then he does this crazy thing. Uh, he, he goes way back in time. He goes back to Genesis 4. Uh, if you've been here very long, you're very nervous because I'm about to go to Genesis. And you know how it gets when I get to Genesis. I just could be there for the rest of the, like, All of a sudden, we're in the middle of a series in Genesis. Uh, but I'm, gonna, I'm just going to stick towards it. Genesis 4 uh, is this story. Adam and Eve 
first humans, right? Uh, they have a uh, place in the garden. Uh, God gave them this thing. Don't, don't do, eat of this fruit, but they did eat of the fruit, and God cast them out of the garden. So shame has entered the world. Brokenness has entered the world. Everything has changed because we decided that we could grasp happiness. We knew better how to live our lives than God himself, the one who made us. And so we have, he, God has, for our own good, cast Adam and Eve out of the garden. And outside of the garden, after the fall, they have two sons, Cain and Abel. We're told this story. Let's start in verse 3. Uh, oh, nope, I'm in the wrong chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry. And his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will not sorry, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, since crouching at the door, its desires for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in a field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. We haven't been out of the garden very long. We've already arrived at fratricide. That's what sin does. Interesting though, right? So John goes way back to Cain and he says, says, hey, listen, don't be like Cain. Cain, it was a great story because, so, so Cain brings this offering and he's like all upset about it and God's like, what, like, why are you mad? Like, why are you mad? Like, do the, do the right thing and you'll be accepted. And he says, look, man, you really kind of got two choices here. Just do the right thing and you'll be accepted. Or you, you could not do the right thing and give yourself to sin. But here's what you need to know. It says sin's desire is for you. Sin's desire is for you, and it's waiting, crouching, waiting for you to consume you. But that's not going to be good for you. And then the next verse tells us what Cain chose. He chose to give sin the thing that it desired. And it consumed him, and he killed his brother. Man, I wish that didn't ring true in my life. We give ourselves to a thing and it begins to consume us. So that's what John is doing here in this passage. He's talking about Cain. God's given him this counsel. And it's not just some any particular action that Cain has done, but he's using him as an example of someone who gives himself to the evil one. We should not be like Cain, who is of the evil one and murdered his brother. Cain's revealing, it's his actions revealing his character. His nature is murderer. Right? That's what John is saying. This is what he is like. He represents this. What was going on in his heart, right? When given opportunity showed up in his life as murder because he had anger and hatred in his heart. Now, my immediate instinct on reading this is to think, hey, John, take it down a notch, right? Nobody's being murdered over here, right? Like, second prez is not doing drive-bys, right? Like, what's, calm down. Like, what are you talking about murder, Right, but what he's saying is he's he's using this amazing thing, and and, and let's be honest, like the reality is he's drawing on Jesus' teachings, right? 
in this section, he says, those who have anger, they have murder in their heart. Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 21, he says this. He's teaching, he says, I know that you've heard it say that you should not murder, but I'm telling you, if you carry anger in your heart, you're just as guilty. Give an opportunity that, for that to grow, that anger that we have, that hatred that we have, turns into tearing down and breaking down. Because the truth is, is when we don't love someone, we don't care for someone, when we don't, when we are angry or hate them, we're wishing that they weren't around. We're wishing that they didn't exist. And so I think that we would say, hey, listen, like, yeah, like, I'm not going to, we're not murdering each other out here. Uh, But the biblical idea of hate, the biblical idea of murder is not loving, right? It's, it's, the idea is this. Uh, have you ever been, maybe you never, maybe this is just, you know, I was on the math team, so uh, you, this happens. So you, uh, you know, where like maybe like the whole, you felt like the whole world was ignoring you. It feels terrible, doesn't it? Have you ever been given a cold shoulder? Treatment, like a whole group of people are like, we're not talking to you today. It feels terrible, right? Because it's like they're saying, we wish you didn't exist. The nature of hate and anger is to tear down, to break down, to make lesser, to murder, right? We can do this with our words, yeah? Words are powerful, right? James says this, the book of James. It says uh, they can be used to build up or to tear down. It's amazing that the mouth can be used for both. We can use our words to make people feel great, to, to build them up, or we can use them to make them feel lesser than. Not just to their face, but behind their back, right? We can break down relationships by gossip and make them feel less than, make them feel small, make them feel less than alive. The biblical notion is that when we tear down and break down that hate and that anger, it's really kind of the same thing. The end result, given the right opportunity and the right momentum, is murder. And so he says, listen, he, the one who does hates, uh, the one that hates is the one that, that murders because uh, that's what it is. We give ourselves to the evil one. We know that we passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. John's not saying that murderers can't repent. Different sermon, they can. He's saying that people of that nature who are giving themselves for that thing. If I were you, I'd be like, Chris, coming on a little strong with the whole gossiping is murder thing. But I'm not saying the same thing. What I'm saying is, though, that John sees them as the same type of heart. Look, right down here, he says, if you have stuff, right? If you have things and you don't give them away, if you have worldly goods and you see your brother in your need and you turn your heart away from that person, I'm not going to provide for them. He puts you in the category of being of the child of the devil, of not loving, of, of being on, of, of a heart of murder. The idea is simply this. You're either tearing down, you're either tearing down or, or building up. And so the anger that gets a hold of us, that makes us restless, it's always right out of reach. And the thing that we want, it shows up in our heart and it shows up in our, it shows up in our action. It's the hate or the love that reveals the family of origin, either of the devil or of God. What's going on in your heart manifests in your life. And so he says this and said, brothers, what we need to do is not be like that brother. 
We, we love, not like, don't be like Cain. We instead are going to love, specifically not just love the whole world, yes, but specifically loving brothers and sisters in Christ. I think that's important, right? Because it's easy to go like, well, I can find a group of people that it's easy for me to love. Nope, nope, nope. Brothers and sisters in Christ. I think he points that there because that's just sometimes hard. It's just, you're like, I don't want to love these people. Can I get an easier group of people to love, please? Nope. These are the people that you're supposed to love, the brothers and sisters in Christ. The ones who are struggling, the ones who are wrestling, the ones who don't have it all put together, these are the ones that you're supposed to love. He says, you're going to encounter hate in the world. Don't, that, that, that shouldn't surprise you, right? It's going to happen because the world's instinct, the world's impulse, the natural impulse of the world is to tear down and destroy what it doesn't understand. The thing that makes you feel bad, let's just crush it. It's the instinct of the world. So don't be surprised when you find it, but we'll have none of that here. Is what John is saying. Not, we'll not have this here. The mark of the family is loving the brothers. The world, places, the world that we live in now places a huge emphasis on, on love, right? It's a big deal. And the Bible also places a huge emphasis on love. But the Bible's definition of love is a little bit more specific than the world's. The world's tends to be kind of like, you know, the thing that makes you feel good. That's love. Uh, the Bible's definition of love is much, much more specific. And he goes into this, like this is how we know love is that, G, that he, he, referring to Jesus, laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our life for the brothers. Uh, it Love is, has a huge emphasis in, in, in the Bible. It is the first fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. It is the sign of real faith in Galatians 6. Uh, it is the greatest of the three graces of the Christian life. And it's the, oh, without it, we're nothing. Uh, love is the test that we live in the light. It's this huge emphasis on it. And it, it's so, so hate when it reaches its logical conclusion, according to John, right, is murder. It's taking the life of another. Love, when it reaches its logical conclusion, is laying down your life for another. That's a big, big difference. To take life or to give life. And so love, according to this text, according to scripture, is going to cost you something. Uh, Love is the willingness to surrender that which has value for your own life to enrich the life of another. And he sets up Jesus. Cain was the example of the, the example of the murderer and the one who hates, the brother who hates, and Jesus the example of the brother who loves, who lays down his own life. And also this, the revelation of the very heart of God. It's not this that you're supposed to go be like this. It's like this is what God is like. The one at the, from the beginning at the very heart of the universe, what he is like is willing to lay his life down for you. And when we've encountered this kind of love, it changes us. And it's going to cost you to love like this, to live like this. Uh, it's going to cost you at the very least off uh, feelings of awkwardness, Right? Right? At church can be awkward. Like encountering people that are different than you and difficult. They, like, I don't know how to talk to this person. Like, what do I do? And it's like, at least, very least, it's going to cost me some awkwardness. That I don't, I, I, and I mentioned awkwardness up front because I like to avoid that at all costs. Right? I'm learning to like be okay to, with it, but generally I'm like, mm, this is uncomfortable. I'm just going to leave. I don't know what to do with my hands. I'm just going to walk away. Right? Like, I, I just don't like it. That's a small price to pay. Uh, spending time with people that you may not might be the, perf- the first people you picked to spend time with, right? At the very least, those things costing you, those things uh, costing you forgiveness, right? Forgiveness costs you. This is the danger, right? The danger of engaging in these things is that uh, you will at some point be hurt. 
You have to be, right? If you love, like part of love is being vulnerable. C.S. Lewis wrote this uh, in his masterpiece, The Four Loves. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It won't be broken. It'll become unbreakable. Impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, to experiencing hurt, or at least the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and challenges of love is hell. We enter into these relationships knowing that hurt is a possibility. And we love anyway. We enter into these relationships when we've been wounded and we love anyway. We enter into these relationships and love anyway. When we have been hurt, right? You enter this stuff and you go, you go on and you're like, hey, you know what? I, I've been wounded by the church. And, and listen, you ought not be. I hate that it happens. You ought not be wounded by family members, by friends, these relationships that, that, that we hold so dear. They shouldn't hurt us, but it's always a possibility. And when we do get hurt and we do get wounded and we do get treated wrong and we step back and go, yes, but look what happened. Look how I've been hurt. Look how I've been treated. John says, Jesus says, yes, I know. Now here's what you do. Love them anyway. What? Yeah, love them anyway. But I don't want to. Yep. I know, I get it. Love them anyway. That's going to be really, really hard. Mm -hmm. It's going to open me up to the potential of being hurt again. Yep. They don't even want my love. You still seek their good anyway. That's the biblical message. Do you understand the power and the beauty of that? That you can live, according to scripture, held by, the, by, by sin, whose desire is for you and whose desire is to consume you, or you can live pouring your life out into the others. Have you ever been so angry at someone? Have you ever left your house and just like start hammering the, the steering wheel, just like, I can't believe this happened again. You know, having arguments in your head over and over again with the same person that you always win, Right? Have you ever been angry like that for like an extended period of time? It feels terrible. It feels like a prison. It feels like they have a hold on you and you can't let go. Wouldn't you rather your heart be full of love? And so we are able to do this because of what's been done for us. We look at the situation and go, but they don't deserve it. Yeah, I know. But as someone who is a follower of Jesus, I know that I don't deserve it either. Not only that, I have the capacity to even be able to love them because I'm not going to ever run short on supply of love. If you are a child of the king, you will never ever run short on supply of knowing that you are loved. You will never ever ever get tired of looking at the cross and knowing that's how bad you are and how loved you are. You'll never run short. We so often treat relationships transactionally. You treat me nice, I'll treat you nice. That's not the Christian way. The Christian way is you treat me nice or treat me bad, I'm going to love you anyway. That is powerful. That is transformative. It is one of the ways God is literally changing the world. It is the way that he is bringing about his kingdom. It's what he did through Christ and now it's what he's doing through us. 
laying your life down, setting aside what you could have good to pour out, pour out for others. It sounds really terrible. The beauty of the, uh, uh, yes, Chris, it's beautiful. Yes, ideas. I want the world to be that way. It's amazing, but it sounds so hard. It sounds so awful. I don't know what I want to do that. Here's the secret. On the other side of loving someone that is difficult to love, forgiving when you don't want to forgive, on the other side of that is an increase to capacity to love and much, much more joy than you know now. You're made for it. You're built for it. You're wired for it. Not your flesh, but the new life that God has put inside you desires this. And when we put aside the flesh and live out of that spirit place, man, it transforms us. Transforms the world, transforms relationships. It's what Dr. King was getting at in his book when he said, you can't drive out dark with dark. Only light will do that. And you can't drive out hate with hate. Only love will do that. That's what he was driving at. This is what he was driving at. That God transforms the world through love. Now, here's the deal. If you grew up in church, what I don't want for you to do is stand up and go, yep, I got to love people more. God's not going to be happy with me. And walk out this door and just try harder. That's not what it says. It doesn't say love harder or Jesus won't love you. What it says is the evidence that you've been transformed is a growing love in your heart, a growing desire to love, a growing willingness because of who Jesus is and what he's done. It's the evidence, not the way in. Your only, only way in is through faith. So we look at our lives and go, I'm not loving here. I wonder what lie I'm believing that's consuming me. And we give that to Jesus. And believe the truth. We look at places we're not loving where there's anger and stiffness and hurt and harm in our heart. I go, why do I get so angry here? And we examine and find the lie that we're believing and we give that to Jesus and believe the truth instead. This is beautiful. This is magnificent. It is a constant focus, not on trying harder to love, but being transformed by the one who loved us, by being in a relationship with him, by worshiping him, by seeing the good, by looking for places in our heart that we have not yet ceded to him and giving that ground to him as well so that he can plant peace and joy and love and mercy and graciousness and kindness and gentleness in there, in those places we don't even want it to grow. And it's hard and we hate it, but I promise you on the other side, so much beauty, so much joy, so much increased capacity to love. This is the beautiful truth of the gospel. This is the evidence that it's working out in our heart that we've encountered the God who is like this. May we have the courage to live it out. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you that you have, that you are transforming the world. And what an absolute miracle that in some way you were utilizing your church to do it. With all of my imperfect loving, with all of my constant failures, you were somehow determined to transform the world through our love. Help me root out the lies. Right? There's places in my heart where I just don't want to believe that you want me to be happy. There's places in my life that I just don't believe that you love me. There's places in my life when I refuse to love others because I would rather hold on to a lie that is trying to convince me that it can satisfy me. Restless, restless, restless. Mm. May we find peace in you. May we find stillness in you. May we find rest in you. May we find stability in a world that is constantly trying to rock us. 
Find stability in the Rock of Ages. Find stability in a love that existed before time began, that exists now and will always exist. May that ground us, that reality ground us, that no matter what hardship comes against us, we stand firm knowing that we are loved and held tightly. Oh, and we see how beautiful Jesus is. It's in his name we pray, amen.